Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. The whole Bible is one story from beginning to end, but this is really how the news about Jesus' resurrection spread out of one city around the world, which we talked about last week. Like if there's ever an interesting time to make some connections, we're learning about how germs travel and how germs spread. And now we're learning about also how the gospel spread. And there's some interesting parallels. God said, I don't want the, uh, the gospel to be quarantined in one city. And some of the same things we're learning about with a virus, it's like, okay, it spreads by person-to-person contact, and it can be spread by the closer you get in community with people, that's how it spreads. So if you want it to stop, isolate it, quarantine, disinfect. And what God says to his early church is, you're going to be my witnesses and spread the message all over Jerusalem, Acts 1.8, right? Jerusalem, where else? Judea, where else? Samaria, today, and to the uttermost part of the world, or to the ends of the earth. In other words, he's saying, I don't want the news and the information about, about the death and the resurrection of Christ to be bound up in one city of quarantined believers. I want it to spread by person-to-person contact. So, you know, God can redeem even these processes by which bad things spread and good things can spread in similar ways too. And we're at this interesting point where the church was saying, all the people who were saved were in one city. And they knew of Jesus' instructions, but they kept saying, well, not yet. We know we need to go to Judea. We know we need to go to Samaria. We know we need to get this news spread around the world, but not yet. And what happened over the last couple sections we've studied is that through persecution and through violence and ultimately through the death of a man named Stephen, a powerful, eloquent, holy bold, courageous volunteer from their church who had a really strong teaching gift through his martyr at the hands of the Sanhedrin and a man named Saul of Tarsus. Through that act and through the subsequent violence, we now see people who were saved, Christians, picking up and packing up and leaving Jerusalem and now traveling to Judea. Traveling today, we'll see, to Samaria. And ultimately, through that man named Saul, who the rest of the book will kind of share his conversion story, becomes a man named Paul, a powerful missionary. Through Paul, actually, Christianity goes from being at the heart of ethnic Jews to, at the end of the book, the heart of Rome. You actually see the gospel go from what was really populated among the Jewish people only to now being deeply populated in the heart of the entire Gentile world. And the fulcrum on which that shifts is here in what we're reading. So let me read to you a section. I'm not going to read the whole passage that I was assigned for today. It's too long. Okay, it's too long for what we could handle this morning. But let me read verses 4 through 13. We're going to read about two men, Philip and Simon Magus, or Simon for short. Verse 4, but the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria. Isn't this cool? The verse right after persecution breaks out, and we think, where was God when all this happened? He's fulfilling. He's helping to fulfill the instructions. Philip goes to the city of Samaria. Now, some of us haven't studied the Bible real long, so this doesn't jump out at us. For others of us, we think a Jew voluntarily goes to Samaria. That did not happen. Okay? I mean, these people were completely, they were two races who hated one another. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. Jews viewed Samaritans, I'll give you a nutshell history in a minute, but just a holding place. This is so radically un-Jewish-like behavior here. Samaritans did not expect any full-blooded or pure-blooded Jews to come down from the city to their city, ever, Philip goes to the city of Samaria. And what does he do? He tells them about the Messiah. And the Samaritan crowds listened 
intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message. They were eager to hear him. And what were they eager to do? And see the miraculous signs that he did. So already, what made this guy, Philip, so interesting to the Samaritans? Two things, what he said and what he did. And you understand the gospel is two things. Sharing the gospel is about words and actions. Not actions only, not word only. Words supported by actions and actions that create curiosity to hear our words. Okay, that's what was going on. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims. And many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So here's a Jewish-speaking, Hellenistic man from Jerusalem who comes to people with whom there had been centuries-long racial barriers, and he ministers to their practical needs through his relationship with God. And verse 8 is what we're going to look at really closely today. So, or therefore... There was great joy in the whole city. A man named Simon, Magus, or Simon, had been a sorcerer there in Samaria for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Now listen, here was the guy who was kind of the leading spiritual voice to the entire city. And he's watching what's going on and all of a sudden his following is starting to leave him and gravitate to the new guy. Everyone from the least to the greatest often referred to Simon as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely. He's not, Philip was not the first guy they listened closely to. They used to listen closely to Simon because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic, Greek word sorcery. But now, something changed. But now, people believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever Philip went. And he, Simon, was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. Now this story continues. The story of Simon Magus continues, and I won't read that to you today, but, but, but if we have time, I'll give you a little backfill because it'll help you see um, Simon Magus is a complicated guy, and I'll put it out there. I think what we see here in these verses is what's later diagnosed by the apostles as a fake or a false conversion, that his motives in coming to Christ were not pure. And later on, the apostles diagnose him as such, and they say, even though you prayed a prayer and you even went through the motions of water baptism by immersion, your heart is completely filled with wickedness and the wrong things, and you're not after Jesus. You're after what you think Jesus can give you to regain your audience. And the apostles later on tell him, you need to repent. You need to get rid of all this wickedness. You need to. And so there's some debate there. Was he saved and backslid? Was it a false conversion? Regardless of how we resolve that argument. In a second, I'm going to tell you more about not only Simon, but Simon Magus, Simon the magician, and what even other church fathers wrote about him, what Justin Martyr and others wrote about this guy. But let's go back to to really what this whole chapter tells us about how a man named Philip and his ministry brought great joy to an entire city where there had been centuries of racial hatred. And what it shows us is that God intends his church to be a fragrance of joy to their city. We're supposed to be a change agent for Perry Hall, for White Marsh, for Parkville. Our cities are supposed to be measurably and observably different because of our presence here. My question to you is, how well do you think the churches in Perry Hall are doing in changing the fragrance of Perry Hall? If all of the doors of all of our churches closed on Monday forever, would anybody in our neighborhoods notice or would they even care? I don't know the answer to that question. I think the answer is yes. 
I think people would notice. I think some people would care. But I don't know the full impact or the effect of that. But echo one thing I know as I read this chapter is this, and I folded, into the, I folded this into the big idea. Because I don't know that every person in Samaria who heard Philip preach converted to Christianity. I don't know if every sick person was healed. What I know is that verse 8 says, as a result of Philip's words and actions, there was great joy in the whole city. So what does that tell me? I folded that into this big idea. The big idea is that when our neighbors can say, I may not believe everything Echo believes, but I cannot imagine what I do without them. Then we'll have great joy in our community. Now you can take Echo out of that and you can put the Christian church, you can put all the churches in Perry Hall, the Christians in my community. But here's what I see. I see in Samaria, we don't know that every single person bought into the doctrine, the teaching, the message of Philip, but they were all glad he showed up. When our community can say, even if I can't come to a place where, I, where every single person in this community says yes to Jesus, but if our community says, I don't even know if I can buy into everything that they say doctrinally, but I am sure glad that for four weeks a month, this church puts on events in this community I can bring my kids to and we can go to the park and feel safe together because I want to raise my kids in an era where they don't have to be scared of all their neighbors. And if this church left, we wouldn't have that. I might not believe everything they say, but I'm glad they're here. And some of us say, well, if not everybody converts, then what's the point? That's a terrible attitude to have. Jesus loves the people that aren't converted. He loves them. And the news is, we don't love people conditionally, do we? I mean, listen, some of us only love Jewish people because we know they're going to convert one day, right? That's a terrible way to think. Jesus died for the people who would convert and the people who wouldn't. He died for everyone. So that anybody who wants to could have him. We love and we serve this community, not... Not on the condition that we are going to just try and put them in our numbers so we can grow. We love them because Jesus loves them. We love them without condition. We love them regardless of dot, dot, dot. We love them whether or not dot, dot, dot. And I will tell you, there will be great joy when, in our city when the churches let the gospel sink so deeply into us that we are serving people and loving people and building relationships with people with joy that whether or not they ever come to see eye to eye with our doctrine, we, we can, those people can say, we're glad they're here and we can't imagine what we would do if they took the churches out of our community. That's what was going on in Samaria. Let's look a little bit closer to this. How do we unpack this? How do you and I take what Philip did as an example that travels 2,000 years later and we say, okay, I can put that shirt on and wear it as it were. How can we be active in spreading God's joy in our city? Number one, if you want to be like Philip was in this passage, the gospel has to be the most amazing thing you've ever heard. The content, the news of the gospel has to be the most amazing thing you've ever heard. Listen, when you get a new appliance that changes your life, you tell somebody, right? We got this new washing machine. And it's Wi-Fi compatible, right? Now, there's a joke in that. Our, our washing machine broke a little while ago, and we had to get a new one. And I asked our repair guy who came to the house. I was like, well, what kind do you recommend? He's like, listen, man. He's like, what features do you have to have? I was like, it cleans clothes. I mean, you're asking the wrong one. Ask my wife. I mean, I mean, it, I mean, for me, I'm like, keep the thing simple. He's like, well, does it have to, you know, he's like, let's pull up, let's pull, you know, let's go to a big box store and let's pull up what they've got out there and filter by this. And it's like of the 96 options, he's like, okay, now do you need it to be Wi-Fi compatible? I said, what? He said, do you need it to be Wi-Fi compatible? I said, the, the washing machine? He said, yeah. He's like, for what? He's like, what? Is it going to like pick up the clothes out of my boy's room and throw it in itself? Is it, I was like, listen, if it, 
through Wi-Fi, if it will pick up the clothes, put them in there, throw them in the dryer and fold them, I'm down. Otherwise, I don't need it. Basically, he's like, okay, do you need it to be front-loading? I was like, well, it doesn't have to be. I mean, it's kind of cool looking. He's like, good, it doesn't get them as clean. You want them this way. I was like, okay. We basically stripped it down to, like, the bottom. He's like, this is the one you want. It was, like, the second to the cheapest model that they had. You know, it had all these extra unnecessary features. But I'm telling you, it's like you end up talking to people, like, for, you get this thing. He's like, now it has deep water wash. I was like, well, what is that? He's like, when he's giving me all the science behind it, I was like, wow. He's like, now it agitates on these two different axes. I was like, ooh, tell me more. I'm like, for a day, the washer was the most astonishing story I had ever heard. I was like, this thing is amazing. I did not know it did all these things. I, you know, this, is, this is just, a, and I'm talking to people that I run into in the street, and I'm like, listen, I, I, I realize you're drinking coffee, but can I sit down and talk to you? Have you ever thought about your washer? And they're like, no, you must tell me more, bald man with latte. Tell me about We all at times, regardless of how talkative we are, we have astonishing things that get into our mind. And we're like, we just have to, it's like it just comes out on its own. We're wired that way. We're wired to want to talk about and listening, listen to amazing stories. People tell me all the time, like, you know, I, I listen to you on Sundays, but this is my favorite preacher. He is the, he's hilarious. I'm hilarious. My son has this new thing, hashtag dad is not funny. He just says that all, you know, I'm like, I'm not funny, I'm hilarious. There's the difference between funny and hilarious. You know, you know, we love storytellers. I do too. I wish I was better at it. You know, but like storytelling, we're captivated by stories, good stories, funny stories, sad stories, real stories, fake stories, Lifetime Channel, all kinds of stuff like that, right? And my wife loves to watch shows that tell stories. Either it's the Lifetime movies or those, I don't know why she watches these investigation discovery things. She'll be like, did you watch the, you know, the trial of so-and-so and such-and-such? I'm like, no. Like, you should. It's, it's terrifying. I was like, that is not a good selling point for me. Like, I don't, I don't need to be terrified in my leisure time. You know, that's just not how I'm wired. You know, I want something my mind can go to. She's like, well, you watch sports and you get all upset about that. Like, that's different. It's sports. That's real. You know, like, this is terrifying. You know. We're captivated by stories. And the sad thing is, I have to even say about my own life, it's only been probably recently until the last few years where I really understood the story of the gospel enough that it amazed me. It amazed me. What do we see about what... It says the crowds listened intently to Philip. Any pastor would love to be able to say, listen, God has given me such a gift to talk to people that they listen intently as I'm speaking. And you look at this guy and you're like, okay, what was his technique? Some of you present. You do corporate presentations. And you know, I know, uh, you know one, of my, one of my friends from here went to a birthday party at his house yesterday. I know he travels, he travels all over the country and all over the world talking to people who listen intently to what he has to say. In fact, he started talking to me intently yesterday about something scientific. I didn't understand all the science, but man, the way he talked about it, I was dialing in. I'm like, really? Wow, I don't even understand a third of those vocabulary words, but that's fascinating to me. My brother-in-law, who's going with us to Israel, writes articles about uh, computer programming. And I, he's passionate about it. If you ever read a program, if you're not a programmer, have you read? They have a whole vocabulary. Nouns, verbs, adjectives, adverbs, I don't get they have a whole sense of humor among each other. But man, they're passionate about it. And sometimes I'm like, I just want to listen. Even though I don't know the vocabulary, you're so passionate, I'm going to hang on here long enough to try and eat from the crumbs of your conversation. It's attractive to us when you see people speaking with passion about something. What was Philip up to here? We're told the essence of what he did in the city was that he proclaimed three things. The Messiah, verse 5, Jesus Christ, verse 12, and the good news, verse 12. He talked to people with great passion and with, with, with great interest about Jesus, the fact that he was the Messiah, and the good news. Basically, those words were interchangeable to him. The Messiah, Jesus, the good news, all one of the same thing. It's almost like they were synonymous. So what does that tell us about what he was telling them? Generally speaking, here's what's different. Generally speaking, all the other religions of the world tell you 
and me what we have to do to connect to God. Okay. It says, you know, it's the pillars or it's the law or it's following uh, these rules or it's changing this. Here's what you need to do to connect to God or a God, generally speaking, every other religion. What was different about what Philip was saying? Philip was saying, here's what God has done to connect to you. Here's what the Messiah did to connect to you. Here's what Jesus did to connect to you. Here's what the kingdom of God, here's what this new government, here's what this new citizenship looks like. This is what Philip was talking to them about. Every other religion was generally founded, not all, but most of them were founded by a prophet or a person who came to say, I've come to show you what you need to do to know God. Only Christianity was founded by a man who said, I'm God who's come to you. And so what that means is that every other religion basically boils down to advice. Here's what you need to do to live a better life. Here's what you have to do to improve yourself. Here's what you have to do to get close to Jesus. Christianity is not advice. Christianity is news. Advice is here's what you need to do. News is let me tell you about what's already been done. Advice says you, 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 you do this. Christianity says, he, 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 he already did it. Do you see the difference? And this is what's so appealing to Samaritans. Because, as I'll backfill this in a minute, but Samaritans had their own version of Judaism, which was all about a temple and rules and gods and laws. And they're hearing Oh my goodness, this is so much different. And not only were the words astounding, but he backed it up with these miraculous actions and activities. So why do I say all that? If you want to be like Philip, it is critical. When you're talking to your family who don't believe, when God creates, you'll hear more about this word next week, we've talked about God moments. When you recognize a gospel moment, in your life because you know what what are what are disciples about well how do i know if i'm being a good disciple we're about being and making disciples and you just mentioned a whole bunch of other vocabulary terms well if you want to find out how you're doing and being a disciple of jesus being his echo right you look at your relationships or you look at your experiences and your moments some people would say milestones you look at what gifts you have and how you're using them those kinds of things you look at your disciplines, you know, the things that we're doing to get closer to God. You look in that arena. And one of these ways we grow is by recognizing God moments, recognizing gospel moments. When the door opens just a little bit and you weren't prepared for it, you're like, man, here I am in the, here I am at Starbucks sitting down next to somebody. And we got in this conversation and despite my best efforts, there's a gospel moment right here in front of me. You've had those, I'm sure. Sometimes you recognize them when they're happening and other times an hour later, you're like, oh. I missed it. Like it happened and I, I totally, totally, totally missed it. If I could have a do-over, I would say dot, 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 right? When you have a gospel moment and you recognize it and you have a chance to talk to another mom at a birthday party when they're asking about what you're doing tomorrow or when you go back to work and they say, well, hey, how was your weekend? What did you do? And you say, well, you know, Sunday we went to church and then we did this and that. And, and they say, oh, hold up a second, when you have those little gospel moments, it's important for us to recognize that's not the time to start telling people, well, I'm a Christian and you should be one too because you need to be part of a church and you can join a movement and you need to serve in a nursery somewhere if you pass a background check and you should be doing this and that and the other. And listen, Christianity is about not doing these things and doing these things and we start heaping on all the advice. Let me tell you, most people I know don't wake up every morning and say, if only I could get a whole lot of additional advice in my life, I'd be that much happier. If only someone could add another 20 do's and 15 don'ts to my life, I would feel at peace and at rest. There is advice in Christianity. The Bible does give us some do's and some don'ts. But listen, Christianity is about come to Jesus and he will lift your burdens and your stress and your pressure off of you. It's not saying come into Christianity and we're really going to pile on the rules now. Come into our church and trust me, people will look at you every week and silently judge you. 
and they'll let you know how well you're doing by whether we get close to you or keep you at an arm's length. Come to us and we'll teach you how to dress. We'll teach you how to talk. We'll teach you how to vote. That's not the aim of Christianity. And that was not Philip's message. He didn't come saying, listen, I've got just better advice for you than what you already got. He came saying, let me tell you about what's already been done. Let me tell you about this man named Jesus. He came, he's God. And he recognized that you and me have no relationship with God because of sin. He recognized that. He, and he said, rather than waiting for man to build a stairway to heaven, because Led Zeppelin won't be around for a couple thousand years, waiting for man to get there, I'm going to go to man. I'm going to go myself. And Jesus, the Messiah that we've read about in our scriptures, he came. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for us. He became the lamb that we sacrifice every year. He became that. And he rose from the dead and we all saw it. And if you put your trust and your faith in him, you don't need the old advice anymore. He could say to them, as of this moment, whether you do another sacrifice, whether you sing another song, whether you memorize another verse, we want you to know that when you put your faith in Jesus, you are fully accepted already. This is what he's done. What a relief and how attractive. And he says, you want to know why I'm here? I'm a changed person. The fact that a full-blooded Jew comes to you and humbles myself to you, it's, it's, I love you. And I want to repent to you for the fact that I've been part of people who have hated you and kept you at arm's length for centuries. I want you to know that God loves you and he's changed my heart. Let me prove it to you. Please, if you're sick, come. Let me minister to you in the name of Jesus. Let me minister healing and life. If you can't, well, let me minister to you. In the, let me show you that through Jesus, we don't have to be separated racially anymore. We're now one. This is for all of us. We don't think we have the answers and you don't anymore. We're all together. That was the message. And if we want to be like Philip, and if we want to be that, friend, the gospel has to become the most amazing thing you've ever heard. And I wonder, is that true of you? Do you see that you being saved is a miracle? Does it blow your mind? If it hasn't, can I encourage you to let the gospel sink into your heart in a deeper way? Can I invite you to say to God, God, I know the facts of the gospel, but I want it to sink into my heart and change me so that it becomes the most amazing thing I've ever heard. That it is not just something that I've taken up, but that it's taken me up. Friends, you can come to that place. Number two, keep moving on. The gospel, oh, well, that's number three. That'll make you happy, but I miss a key part. The gospel, if we want to spread joy, it has to remain a grassroots movement. It has to remain a grassroots movement. Now, what do I mean by that? Politically, I think we understand that, right? There's two different ways that things get done, basically. Institutionally or through grassroots. Institutionally means there's some type of governing or leading authority, power control, that leads from the tops down with rules and policies and a certain way of enforcing those things. Then you have another way of things getting done and getting started, which is from the grassroots, which means it's a dynamic thing. Ideas and passion bubble up, not through institution, but through individuals, and they get traction, emotion, and movement. People get passionate about them. People are willing to live and die for these ideas. And what we see here is that the gospel has to remain a grassroots movement. Let me bring some clarity here. There are at least two different dudes with the same first name in the first couple books of the New Testament. There's at least two different Philips. There's Philip the apostle, right? One of the 12, you remember him? Okay. He's with the 12, then the 11. He's in the upper room. He's following Jesus. He receives him as his Lord and Savior, receives the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. He's part of the leadership of the church, Philip. Now, where is Philip at this point in the story? Where's that Philip the apostle? He's not in Samaria. Luke tells us where he is. Where is he? Jerusalem, everyone except the apostles were scattered. Okay? He's in Jerusalem. 
But Luke tells us there's another Philip. Do you remember him? We already met him before this chapter. He was one of the people who at the first business meeting, back in chapter 6, they had a problem. You remember this? Were you here that week? They had a problem. They had widows who were being neglected in the food ministry. And they brought the problem to the apostles and said, hey, we think there's the appearance of favoritism here and some of the widows who are Hellenistic speaking are getting looked over in the daily distribution of food. And the apostles say, we need to deal with this. We're not going to leave our teaching role to be head of the, the food ministry. You guys vote. They call a business meeting. A couple thousand people show up. We need seven men. List of criteria. They need to be full of the Holy Spirit, good leaders, integrity, powerful, wise. We need you to vote in seven men to lead this ministry. It's not a very glamorous ministry, but we need one around here. And so you vote somebody in. And the first name on the list is Stephen. But right in the next line, you see this guy, Philip. He was not a professional minister. The Philip in Acts chapter 8 is different from Philip the Apostle, which is important for several reasons. I guess the less important reason is because we see an example of somebody who was not an apostle using gifts that we think were typically only reserved for apostles. He's used powerful in, in healing. He's used powerfully in the casting out. That scared me a bit, but I'll be all right. He used powerfully in the casting out of demonic spirits. We also, it's also important because this dude, for all we know, did not have a lot of evangelistic and teaching training. The apostles who weren't scattered had an advantage. You know what they had? They had a 40-day intensive one-on-one master class with the resurrected Jesus. Can you imagine what that was like? We don't even get, we don't even get like the podcast from those sessions. We don't have the textbook. All we know is that it said for 40 days, Jesus drilled into these dudes every single possible proof they could want to the validity of his resurrection. He's giving them all of the scriptural proof. He's giving them all of the physical proof. He's giving them all of the intellectual arguments and proofs. They got 40 days of that. And the reason why is because Jesus knew these jokers needed to be like credible eyewitnesses. He's prepping them to be the lead voices and the first voices in spreading the news. This Philip was not in those classes. He's a citizen who gives his heart and life to Jesus probably through hearing the teaching of one of the apostles. And he gets deeply immersed in the church and in the life of the church and in the ministry of the church. But this guy is part of a larger group of non-professional, volunteer, accidental missionary Christians who in a spontaneous response to persecution in their hometown, scared me again, If I put it out here, you can't hear me. And if it's too close, I'm popping my P's and T's. He responds with his other Christians. They're just scattered. And it's this group of people who start these mass conversions. Not the pastors. Not the trained evangelists. They stayed in Jerusalem. What does that show you? Every follower of Jesus is fully empowered by the gospel to go out, tell the gospel, and and be part of seeing people convert. Every one of you has the same permission, authority, and assignment from God to be part of this grassroots movement. It wasn't necessarily apostles at this point in history that were carrying the flame of the gospel around. It was volunteers who were mostly untrained who went out with the most amazing thing they had ever heard and a heart for people that previously they didn't like. They had a story to tell and power and boldness in the gospel. Not only that, they had no strategy, none at all. They did not sit down as a team with a whiteboard and map this whole plan out. They did not take it to a board for approval. They did not have a t-shirt. They had no PowerPoint. They had no manuals. This is not the way any of us do this type of a plan. We don't do this. We very, in fact, we don't usually look at enthusiasm with taking out a plan to say evangelize the world and say what plan should we have? None. Let's just go. 
But that's what they did. This was a dynamic, dynamic thing that was happening with passion and great ideas and great enthusiasm. Now listen, you have to see how bizarre this is. Jews hated Samaritans. I told you I was going to backfill this. If you were with us this summer, we went through the minor prophets, right? And we unpacked a lot of the history about why did Jews and Samaritans hate each other so much? So let me go back just a minute. I have to give this to you in a nutshell. Way back in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, God's people, God made a covenant with them, made a covenant with Abraham. Basically, here was the idea. I made a covenant with Adam and it failed in the garden. God made a covenant with a guy, with a man, and said, if you listen to me and you'll obey me, we can always be together. And he failed in that garden because the man said, what I want trumps what you want. And because of that, God and man's relationship was severed. And so God hits the reset button. Noah, Abraham comes along and God says to Abraham, you know what? I still love my people and I'm going to make an, a covenant with you, a relationship that's bound together by covenant. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. Everything I have is going to belong to you and you're going to belong to me. But this has to be different and I'm going to give you the law. I'm going to give you some fence posts. I'm going to give you some do's and don'ts. Because my people, in order for me to be with you, you have to be holy and righteous people and you're flawed by sin. And so we have to have some way that we can have company. If you stay inside these fence posts, there is life. If you'll listen to the law, to the do's and the don'ts that I give you, there is life here. But if you stray outside of that, it's death there. So he makes his covenant with Abraham, carried out by the priests. At some point along the way, the people in Israel start looking at the other nations and say, hey, they've got kings. They're monarchies. We want a king. They go to God and, we want a king. And God says, you have a king. I'm your king. Now, nah, we want a king we can see. God says, be careful what you ask for. We still want a king. And God gives in and gives them a king. And some of the best, the highest points of Israel were under king who? Well, Solomon was rich, but really the highest point is David Solomon somewhere in there, right? After King Solomon's reign ends, Israel has a serious civil war. And the monarchy splits. As a result of the civil war, they become two distinct countries. You have the northern king, I say countries, they're two distinct kingdoms. Cleverly named the northern kingdom because they were in the north. Come on, guys. They were in the north. Seriously. Throw me a bone today. They're in the north. And the other king, anybody want to guess what they were called? The, not the east. Brian Griswold. The southern kingdom. Thank you, Wes. There's going to be a day when you're sitting up here and I'm down there and I'm going to remember this moment. You got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Which one had more tribes? Northern had ten tribes. Southern had two. It was Benjamin and Judah. And the southern kingdom was probably the more spiritual of the two. They retained Jerusalem. Northern kingdom made their own capital city. So you had the northern kingdom with their own king, their own capital, southern kingdom, their own king, their own capital. Now what makes this important? Well, eventually both of these kingdoms got conquered by other nations. Who went first? Which, which kingdom, north or south, got conquered for, first? North. You know who conquered them? The Assyrians did. The Assyrian Empire conquered the north. Now here's the interesting thing about the Assyrians. One, one thing, one of their calling cards was whenever they conquered a territory, they repopulated it, but they didn't want the indigenous pure race to remain a pure race. They wanted that race to be compromised. So every time the Assyrians took over a region, they would, I was going to say bus in, but they would bring in people from other races, from other areas they conquered to encourage and to sort of force racial integration. And to create new hybrid races. So you would have 
all of those pure-blooded Jewish ethnic, you know, of the Jewish race who were in those ten kingdoms now intermarrying with whatever. And so you had these new races, and I don't like this term, but it was one that was used. You have this new race emerged that the pure-blooded Jews in the South, who, viewed the, who already hated their northern counterparts, they viewed them as half-breeds, and this new race of intermarrying Jews with other things became known as Samaritans. Now, just so you know, as of two years ago, there was a study done, there were 802 Samaritans remaining on the earth as of two years ago, almost completely wiped out which was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but I digress. So you have Samaritans, and they were hated by the Jews, not only because of the civil war, but now they were viewed as betraying God because what was one of the fence posts? You don't marry outside your race. That was an Old Testament fence post for a reason. That also died with the Old Covenant. There's more on that later, okay? So the southern kingdom eventually gets conquered too by the... Babylonians, fast forward 70 years after the Israelites are in captivity, Babylonians get conquered, and the new king there has a good relationship with one of the guys from the southern kingdom who got carried off by the name of Nehemiah. Nehemiah and the king get together, and Nehemiah says, my heart is to go back and rebuild the temple in my homeland. The king says, I'm on board. How much do you need? Nehemiah gathers up people, great administrator and organizer, goes back to rebuild now. There's a little part in Nehemiah. Nehemiah's building the temple back. I'm sorry, Nehemiah's rebuilding the wall. Ezra rebuilt the temple. Nehemiah's rebuilding the wall. And different, there was a group, there's some volunteers that came and wanted to help. You know who they were? Samaritans. Samaritans came to Nehemiah and said, can we, we help rebuild the wall? Nehemiah looks at them and says, thanks, but no thanks. This is for the pure-blooded Jews only. And so you know what the Samaritans do? They go back and rebuild their own temple. Now we have two temples in Israel. So much so that when Jesus is talking to a woman at the well, and what, of what descent was she? Samaritan. What question does she ask him? Which of the two temples is the right one? Do you remember that? So you have centuries of this. 10 BC, I think. Or no, I'm sorry. 1000 BC is David, roughly. From 1000 BC up until this point in the New Testament... There is all this racial hatred. Samaritans feel like, who are you Jews to tell us we can't serve the same God? So we'll just have our own temple with our own law. Because you make us feel inferior and that's insulting to us. And the Jews are like, we want nothing to do with them. They're sellouts. They represent everything that's wrong with the Jewish history. And now you have Philip, a full-blooded, Jew coming down from Jerusalem to say, hey, let's get back together. Let's, let's come back together, guys. We're one now. How powerful. How powerful the racial barriers that are just falling away through the power of the God. There's so much more to say. I'm, I'm completely out of time. I have like three minutes left, so let me just give you the last point. The gospel must be expressed in both words and actions. If we want great joy in our city, how to balance this out. The church must have the ability to put into words why you believe you have hope through Jesus. You have to be able to say it. But not just say it, you have to be living it. We have to have both and. And I've shared this before. Everybody's favorite, every introvert's favorite quote in all of history is St. Francis of Assisi, right? Preach the gospel at all times and use words when necessary. But just being a good neighbor will not lead your neighbor to knowing Jesus. But just preaching at your neighbor won't fully show them the changed life of Jesus. Philip preached and taught so he knew his stuff. At the same time, he also had a keen eye to those who are suffering, those who are struggling, those who are possessed by demons, those who are sick, those who were physically disadvantaged, those who are financially disadvantaged. So what does this say to us? 
on the one hand, it's not telling the church that we need to be the only and the best social agency in town. But it's also saying that the church should not be completely neutral and indifferent to all the social needs in town. It's saying that in the name of Jesus, we should have compassion and empathy and marshal our resources as God leads us to be able to address real needs in our community. But at the same time, we don't do that in place of sharing and speaking the truth about Jesus. He is the because to the why we do those things. Because Christians aren't the only people in the world who are moral. Christians aren't the only people in the world who can be kind. In fact, there are other religions and there are other world religions who don't believe what we believe, who actually are probably much more compassionate, kind, moral, generous, servant-hearted. I mean, listen, if you want to be a good Mormon, you give years of your life to evangelism. How many Christians do that? Right? Not only do they do that, they are mobilizing the 18 to 22-year-olds to give two years to their faith. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm like, that's a pretty powerful statement. I don't believe their doctrine for a moment. But man, they're doing something that's getting people fired up about living with words and action what they believe. How much more so should those of us who have been transformed by the gospel be able to take what we say in words and in actions? So much more. I will just leave that there because maybe I can leave you with an image or a story. I stumbled on this earlier. Some of you know that I, you know, I get a day off each week. I try and take it. I try and use it. Some weeks I can't take it, but Friday is usually my day off. And one of the things when I can is I just like, I, I like to go to auctions. It's just fun. And um, the people watching is extraordinary. Um, ironically enough, there's a side story that's sad but true. They were auctioning off cases of Purell and toilet paper at the last auction that I went for. And it went for ridiculous amounts of money. Um, sometimes when you go to an auction, you might, you might be looking around beforehand and, you know, it, they'll have what they call boxed lots. It's a box with whatever in it. Um, and sometimes there might be three of the whatevers that you really want, but you have to buy the whole box. And so recently, there were three whatevers that I wanted, and I didn't even look through the rest of the box because I knew what those three things were, and I knew what their value was, and I hoped nobody else did, and I was right. Unfortunately, then, I became, I at times become the caretaker of things I never wanted to have. And at the bottom of this box, I just brought a small sampling was I bet 15 examples of new, old stock, unopened, unused, various colognes and perfumes. This one is American leather. I, I mean, look at the advertising on that. Um, this one is Chantilly. It was a new value pack. And I'm like, I never wanted to learn anything about this type of thing. But if I don't want to be the caretaker of this anymore and I want to move on from it, I can throw it all out. Or I can figure out, do these things have value? And if so, what kind of value? And is it worth my effort and time to try and get value of them or should I just move on from them? So unfortunately, I had to take a deep dive into the dark web and learn all I could about old perfume. Riveting stuff. And I don't know that I'm an expert, but I have so much useless knowledge about old perfume. And I'm like, how do I know if this stuff is still good? And one of the first things you find out about old cologne and perfume is that the more sealed it is, the more valuable it is. Because what happens to unsealed perfume? It loses over time. It's fragrant. It evaporates. Well, what actually evaporates is because uh, Wikipedia, uh, because um, the alcohol content evaporates and it changes the composition of the formula and it both dries up and goes bad because the difference between a good fragrance and a bad fragrance is in the ratio of the whatevers they put in there and alcohol this is the most you've heard me talk about alcohol from the pulpit so enjoy it um so i'm like opening up these bottles and i'm like okay for some reason i found out that american leather in this bottle look at that pretty stuff right never been opened um looks like just old gasoline to me um, if you wear this currently, see me afterwards. I got a deal for you. But um, 
the more sealed it is. Because sunlight can do stuff to it too. Yeah, but yeah, you let, you let the cap open, it gets all messed up. Other fun fact, you know, you're reading like, well, what do you do with old perfume? And they say that if you put it in boiling water in your kitchen, it can still populate the house with the right fragrance, which makes no sense to me. But I guess, okay, you turn up the heat on it, it can still spread. But I have all these old perfumes. And I'm like, and it says you got to look at the expiration date. And then there's a, there's, an, uh, there's a code on the back called PAO or something like that that tells you how many days after it's been opened. Uh, the, the, the P stands for something, but AO is after opened. How many days after it opened that it's still good? And I'm like, I do not want to be an expert in this topic. And I'm looking through all this old perfume and I'm, fine, I'm looking some of it up. I'm like, okay, why is that worth $60? Why is this one worth $80? Who is buying this stuff? Like, I don't even know that I want to meet them in person. It's not the person I want to run into. But everybody said the problem is after it's lost its fragrance, unless there's collectible value in the glass itself, just throw it out. They also said beware of putting on cologne or spraying on perfume that is past its expiration date because once the composition changes, it can burn you. It can cause rashes that are in some ways irreversible for people. And I was like, wow, this is really insightful. But then I started to think, and it really, uh, you know, pastors don't always get sermon illustrations from things. Um, but it, I started thinking like, man, like there's this analogy that I've always taught about being the aroma of Christ from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Or 2 Corinthians chapter, I think it's either 2 or, it's either 15, 2 or 2, 15, I think it's 2, 15. I started thinking about this, I was like, if we're going to be great joy in our city, and you're choosing echo, and you're assigning this to us, there's an assumption there. If we're going to spread joy, you have to have joy to spread. And I'm like, God, I don't know how you measure people's joy, and I'm going to not measure joy at echo based on the snapshot I would take from where I sit on a Sunday morning. Because I don't think that's fair. Because if we would say, well, joy just equals volume and how people respond verbally in church to preaching... I would jump off a cliff, okay, because we're not, we are not known as a church that's just like shouting the pastor down. If we're shouting during church, something's wrong. There's an emergency somewhere, right? But I wondered how many of us are the vintage perfume that's had the cap off for 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, that at one point we were fragrant. There was the right distribution of Christ. In us, And I realize in my analogy, Christ equals alcohol, and that's not the analogy I really want to make. But I said, God, is there a way for me to be refragranced? I want to be like Philip, and I do see joy in my life, and I see it growing. But friend, if we're going to follow this analogy, we have to be like the perfume with the cap off that never loses its fragrance. How does that happen? You have to be re- perpetually refragranced because we need to live the aroma of Christ that we are properly fragrant we're all spreading some sort of fragrance or odor everywhere we go what Philip was spreading was joy and the way he did it was by going to people and with his words and with his actions he was showing love and joy to everyone and even the people who didn't convert took on the fragrance and said, if that fragrance was lifted out of our city, what would we do? Do you need to be refragranced with true joy that comes from the wonder of the gospel? To see that you are accepted, fully accepted by grace, Not by your resume. You've been accepted by grace by the only set of eyes that matter. Worship team, you can come back. Think about a courtroom for a second. The word Satan means accuser. It's his number one line in his LinkedIn profile. What is his his main skill? Accusing. You're like, well, I thought he was the deceiver. He is, but number one skill of the enemy, he is the accuser of the, what does the Bible say, of the brethren, meaning of the believers. His main thing is to make accusations about all the bad stuff you do all the time. He is the prosecuting attorney in the courtroom of God. He's the, he's the prosecuting attorney. 
God the Father is the judge. Guess who the defendant is? In the great trial of the judgment room of heaven, we're the defendant. Who's bringing charges against us? Satan. And he's saying, let me tell you, your honor, about Phil. I've got a long, I've been watching him for a long time. Let me tell you about everything that he has done to break your law and why he deserves death. And he starts reading down the list. And you're just sitting there and you're shrinking lower and lower. You know why you're shrinking lower? Because he's right. He's reading off a whole bunch of stuff that broke the law. And every single infraction carries one death penalty. So if there's anything on the list, we're already in trouble. And even if we wanted to pay it off, we couldn't die enough times to satisfy the debt. And when he's done, he says, I rest my case. And you're like, okay, Jesus, get him. And you're like, all right, now you, you listen up, devil. He's going he's gonna to tell you now. And Jesus stands up and he says, your honor, it's even worse than he said. And you're like, what? He left out a whole bunch of things. You know, he doesn't he didn't see everything. It's even worse. And you're like, oh, man, that's right. He knows what I thought. He knows what I daydreamed about. And you're like, oh, man, I'm cooked. And you're like, Jesus, what are you doing here? Jesus is the defense attorney. He says, Father, he, my client deserves death. He deserves penalty. He is guilty. Permission to approach the bench, Your Honor. And God says, come on, son. And Jesus walks up and he says, here is payment in full for my client's penalty. Here's my blood. Here's my life. Here's my death. Here's my resurrection. And you'll see that more than pays off his debt to you. Do you accept this payment? Of course I do, son. Of course I accept it. He says, then I demand not mercy, He's like, Jesus says, and he says, you know, you listen, he'll say, you know, I'm pointing at you like you're the devil. You're not. You've got the haircut of Jesus. You're not the devil, okay? He says, he's like, listen, he would say, you know, listen, devil, because you know this already. Let me just remind you of what you know. Father, you're just. You're holy. And because you are, you would never demand two payments from somebody. Phil has already been paid for. I demand justice for Phil. Freedom. Life forgiveness if that's what phil wants phil what do you want yeah yeah i'll have that i'll have that the story is nothing about phil it's about everything jesus has done that's the good news and if you don't have jesus and if you have not accepted his payment you're essentially the one sitting there saying no i'd rather have the penalty does that make any sense and here's the even more sobering part without jesus you have no defense attorney you're going to stand before God one day with a long list of accusations and no one to defend you and a debt you can't pay. And you will be sentenced and you will be separated from God from ever, forever, eternal death and hell. That is an astonishing story. The fact that you don't have to do anything to earn the payment. It's already been paid. And that has to sink into your heart because it's amazing and it changes us and it bubbles up and you see people through a different lens. Even the people you don't like, even the people, even if they wanted to convert, you wouldn't want them to be saved. And when you can look at those people differently, you know the gospel has sunk into your heart because the gospel does two things. First, it takes you down like you're shrinking in the seat. You're like, oh, I'm a sinner. I deserve death. No one's beneath me. And then it lifts you up to the stars and it says, I'm accepted by God by the only pair of eyes that ever mattered because of nothing that I've done because of Jesus. I can't make him feel any differently. It, it takes you down. It lifts you up. And when that happens, two things go on in your life. When it takes, you come to a place when the gospel takes you over that nobody's beneath you anymore. You can't look down at anybody. You look at everybody with grace and with tenderness and with love because nobody's beneath you. And at the same time, you're utterly bold and courageous and fearless because nobody's opinion matters but God's. Has the gospel sunk into you that way? Oh, pastor, now I feel bad. Uh-uh-uh, because the more important question is, if it hasn't, do you want it to? Then let's pray. Heavenly Father, may your gospel...
become more real to me and to us today than it ever has before. It is a story, but it's news. It's been done. We have the best news. It's not about here's how to fix your life. Do these 12 things or 10 things or five things. It's about here's the answer to your life. Let me tell you what's already been done for you. Lord, let that sink into our hearts because it demands a response. We either accept it or reject it. But every man, woman, and child deserves the right to say yes or no to the gospel, to say yes or no to Jesus. Thank you for preserving what happened through Philip's life because it gives us confidence that you can use ordinary, untrained people like us to reach people that previously we would have never even had a meal with. Because they vote differently than we do. Or because they live in a different place than we do. Or they look differently than we do. Or they have a different sense of values than we do. And we have no empathy for them unless they repent. But God, you changed Philip's heart. He started loving people whether they repented or not. He had a new outlook. And God, I pray that the gospel that he had sinks into our hearts too. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with Him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.